Good morning. Thanks, Anthony. All right. <laughs> um, I'm excited to preach the written and revealed Word of God to us today. Um, Matt made a grave mistake in giving the passage on uh, doctrine and teaching to the elder who has the teaching spiritual gift. Uh, but he's been enjoying the prophecy gift of First John for a while. Um, today we are um, doing a mouthful. Um, if you look at the title of today's sermon, it says, Knowing God and the Importance of Doctrinal Specificity. Um, you, you can't say it the way that you want to say it, I know. When you see specificity, you want to say specificity, and that would be wrong and feel awkward. So that's how you can know. Um, we've been in First John now, for this will be week nine. Um, we started in the middle of January, um, and we're coming to, not a close, but really getting on the tail end of this letter where he gets into some of the specific pieces of what he has been concerned about. So if you remember way back to January, those of you that have been with us since then, um, John has two purposes, two primary purposes in writing this epistle. He's already written to us in the gospel, giving us an account of the way that Jesus lived. His primary purpose in his gospel was to show us Jesus as God. Um, that is a, is a huge theme for John and his particular gospel. But when we get here in First John, um, it's almost like you get the opposite side of him. So instead of having pushed so much emphasis on Jesus of Nazareth being God, deity, we see now in First John a concern primarily for Jesus of Nazareth as man, as incarnate Lord. And what, what's interesting in this is that shifting from his focus of the gospel, we, we get to encounter a different aspect of of who Jesus is, with a primary purpose in his gospel of being so heavily focused on the deity of God, we can forget some of the humanity side. Now, we as a church have spent a lot of time on the humanity of Christ. Um, two Christmases ago, or last Christmas, we did a uh, series on Jesus, the man. Um, it was specifically talking about the incarnation of Christ. Then we spent a long time in Luke, and Luke's job, our primary goal, um, particularly who he's writing Jesus as, is as a man. He's writing to the Greeks, and he's portraying Jesus as a man. And then we jump into First John, and John in his epistle is portraying Jesus as a man. So at Renovation, we've spent a lot of time talking about Jesus as a man, and it only continues here, but it's not just Jesus as a man. There's a certain type of relationship that's going on between the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And that's something that we want to explore very specifically today. We've talked about one of the main goals of his epistle being the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. The incarnation of Christ is a primary focus of the epistle of 1 John. The secondary focus for us is um, not just implication, because it's incredibly explicit for us, is how do I know that I know God? And that's more where our theme comes from, is knowing. How do I know that I know God? When somebody comes up to me and says, are you a Christian? I should say, yeah. How do you know you're a Christian? And I would say that the way that you answer that is going to be incredibly revelatory of what you place your faith in as a believer. Uh, we talked in home gathering this past week. Those times that you are doubting, when you have a condemning heart, a heart that says, I'm not sure, sure you've got this Jesus thing down. 
Are you really a believer? Do you really believe in Jesus? There's some specific questions we're supposed to ask ourselves in response to that. How do I know that I'm a believer? How do I know that I know God? And I think a love for the brethren has been our primary test. Knowing that we love the brothers and sisters of the body is a huge indicator as to whether or not we know God. But in 1 John 2, we see huge uh, contrasts between two different things. We have light, we have dark. We have God and we have the devil. We have love and we have hatred. We have life and we have death. Completely opposite ends of the spectrum in each case. And John consistently says there is no middle ground. You are either dead or you are alive. You are either loving people or you are hating them. And so for us, as we get into having worked through that, I hope you can see that John's very specific about what he's trying to say, particularly in his vocabulary, but also in his ideas. And so when we get into chapter 4 here and we start talking about truth and error, we were presented with yet another comparison. And so looking at this comparison of truth and error, we need to understand that, again, we're not going to find a middle ground. And the danger when it comes to this particular subject is it's really easy to try to find middle ground. But what we will see is that all of that middle ground is just parts of error that have little rings of truth in it. But they still remain in error. And so when we talk today, and some of this may seem a little... Here's Rusty talking about doctrine again. Um, Can't help it. This is what we're doing. Um, And we have to be specific. I was up until 2 a.m. last night with my parents being specific. Um, we agree on a lot of things, but there are finer and specific points that we have to work through when it comes to our faith. There are precision elements when it comes to believing in Christ that have to be present. And my goal today is not to discourage you. It's not to, um, it's not to show you things that you're missing. My goal today is to show you the, the truth, how you can know the truth, how you can know that you know God by knowing the truth. But I also really want to challenge us today that there are some specifics when it comes to doctrine that we've got to know. And they are incredibly important. Not just because it helps a lot in life. It is salvation-oriented important. Now, I know for me, my tendency, and I had to be careful this week in prayer, and I appreciate your prayers as well. But in preparation, I want to give you all the details. um, And I can't do that. That's not going to be doing good justice to the text, and it's not going to be proclaiming. So my goal today really is to paint those two extremes and to show us what is important about that lack of space in the middle and why we have to be precisely right or we will be always precisely wrong. So today let's jump into our text. We have 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that he is coming and he is already in the world now. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. 
We are from God, and anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. From this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the truth contained on these pages for us today. And Father, I would ask with your spirit that you would illumine our hearts, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and comprehend your word. Father, that we would take what you have given us and we would apply it to our lives in a deep and meaningful way. Father, as you change our desires from the inside out and you lead us on in righteousness. How many of you guys did Renovate Us? Renovate Us, for those of you that are new, um, is on our website. It's kind of a preparatory guide for Sunday. Um, it gives us an idea of what um, Matt or myself have been preparing all week. Um, gives you some questions to think through, let you read through the text. How many of you guys did that? Yeah, accountability time, yay, and, and public church. Um, good. Uh, there's a quote on there I want to read real quick. It says, throughout history, true Christianity has flourished just in proportion to the degree in which the Bible is known and its truths are diffused among the people. There are two indicators that primarily help us measure church growth and uh, church, particularly purity in the church throughout history. Uh, the first one is persecution. When persecution in the history of the church has been high, the church has been at its strongest. In times of persecution, those who are not really of the faith and have never really been a part of the church fall away. They can't handle, for lack of better terms, the pressure. The persecution will purify the church by pushing those who really do not believe the truth of God's word out from among us and will strengthen those that are within. So that is a, a big marker. The second one is in times of theological precision. Where do I get that from? The Reformation was an enormous time of growth in the church because of theological precision. Early after, um, in, in 2 to 400 A.D., after the uh, church had been growing and established, great growth in the church, not just because of what Paul had done in the early church in you know, 60 A.D., but particularly a couple hundred years later when you have some of the other great fathers of the faith and theological precision, studying doctrine, sharing doctrine, and people understanding and grasping and applying the Word of God, you have a strong church. And so the challenge for us today is why can't we do that now? I mean, we do have increased persecution in America, but it's all political persecution, and it's not entirely what we would want to compare to those of our brothers and sisters that are perishing for their faith because of persecution. Nonetheless, as far as we're concerned, it has risen greatly, even in the past 10 years. So that's something that we can use to aid us as far as how can we make one of these things happen. Um, the other would be to focus more on God's Word. Let us be theologically precise in what we believe. I mean, you look at the denominations that we have, and there's a reason that we have so many different denominations. There's like 18 different forms of Baptist. Why? There are some precise things that we have to break fellowship over. Now, on the other hand, there are people who do disagree with us on some pretty precise things that we can have great fellowship with. Uh, Orthodox Presbyterians are some of our best friends right now in the faith. Uh, at C4G, we're going to be celebrating with a lot of them. Uh, it's an exciting time for us to be able to work together with other people in the kingdom. But at the same time, there are lines drawn for us where we say, this is a conviction for us. 
And so what I want for today as we move through this is to take that quote and say, as we've said before, beliefs are something that you hold and convictions are something that hold you. I think you can be convictional about what John is teaching us today, and these are going to be things that hold you. We have to be specific about them. So let's give some background as we jump into this. The background of First John, we've already received nine weeks ago now um, in our overview. And you know his initial points, I've already shared those this morning. But what we can gather from the background of our specific text is this. There seems to be a prevalence of supernatural phenomena such as prophecy or tongues. These things are prevailing in the church atmosphere. Not, not just in the city around, but even in the actual churches. And we see some of these things being addressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then in 14. You see this issue of tongues and unruly tongues being used. How should they be used? How should they function within the church? What is an improper way for these things to work? Are these things of the Spirit or are they not of the Spirit? And we see Paul correcting some of these things in the early church. And some of these things are still happening even where John is writing. And the problem is that simple souls were, and unfortunately still are today, so impressed by such manifestations that they're, they're dazzled by them. We see these things of tongues and prophecy and, and faith healings and all these things, and people are dazzled by that. There is no better way to put that. They're enthralled with it. They say, surely this must be a movement of God. And John, for us, starts off saying, believe not every spirit. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. And it is the present tense, and it seems to indicate that John's readers were tending to accept uncritically all of the teaching which seems to be given under such inspiration. So these people that are coming in tongues and prophesying, it seems as if, from, from what he's saying, do not believe every spirit. That they're believing a lot of them. I mean, it's a danger that's happening in their presence. John's concern is not so much that they test the character of the inspired utterance. He's not trying to get them to explore the character, whether it's a genuine or spurious, whether it's them or whether it's genuine. We're not concerned about necessarily if they're genuine in character or if even what they're saying is necessarily true. I mean, it could be true and there's still a danger there. John's primary concern is rather the origin. Where is this utterance coming from? Where is this message coming from? Where is this inspiration coming from? You see, an inspiration could be coming from something that is demonic and still be true. And typically the danger is it's mostly true. And that's what is so dangerous about it. So we have to be concerned, as John is pointing out for us, what is the origin? Is it demonic or is it divine? And so, this isn't the first time that we see in Scripture tests of whether something is not genuine, but again, divine or demonic. Jesus had tests, and they were typically more morality tests when it comes to this. Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. And I think that's a good test. By what they produce, you will know who they are. By apples hanging on an apple tree, I know it is an apple tree. By its fruits, I know what it is. But John had moral tests as well. If you remember back even to chapter 3, one of the tests was righteousness in chapter 3, verse 10. And love in chapter 3, verse 10. And then even in 4, 8 coming up for us. 
In 4.8, it says the one who does not love God does not know God because God is love. It's a pretty easy test when it comes to origin. But there are even theological tests as well. In an effort to kind of unify Scripture for us, if we reach all the way back into Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 through 5, we see where some of this prophecy stuff originates from. Now, we've talked about this back in uh, Kingdom and Covenant. or um, That's not what we called it. Yeah, it is. Gospel and Kingdom. Thank you. It's been a couple of years. <laughs> Gospel and Kingdom is a, is a good series for the, those of you that are uh, new here or haven't heard that. It gives us a big framework for how to interpret Scripture. Um, I refer, we refer to that a lot. Um, I don't know that there's a way around that. <laughs> Uh, but for us, let's, let's unify Scripture here as we seek out where does kind of prophecy start from. It should be on the screen. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer or dr- of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, then you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. We're given other instruction in the Old Testament that if a prophet prophesies an event to come and it does not come about, then he should be put to death. And any prophet that is of God, his prophecies will always come to pass. The prophecy is not something that's new to the Jews and it's been covered fairly well in the law, the prophets. But now we're dealing with Gentiles, right? We're in the New Testament church, and you have this infusion of Greek, Romans, um, into these Gentiles into the church. They also have a history when it comes to prophesying. Um, It is highly different than the Jews are used to. And so they're used to many gods. They have a pantheon of gods. And people can reply and respond to any of them. You've heard of the oracle at Delphi? That was considered a legit prophecy. Every time, any time that they opened their mouth, it was considered gospel, for lack of better terms. That's what they're coming from. And now when John is writing to this church that has this mixture now of Jews who understand what prophecy should and should not look like, they've had the prophets. They've had all that. They have that. They have it in the Torah. But as we move into this kind of syncretism, if you will, of cultures, you have all these Gentiles who do not know how to handle prophecies that seem to be coming from something that is good in character. It seems genuine. How do we handle these things? And so we have two tests. The test is applied in two primary ways. The first is the teacher. In verse 2, it says, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh It's from God. So by the teacher, verse 2, the content of the teaching is decisive. So yes, I'm going to be talking about myself a lot today as I'm teaching. Um, If what I come out of my mouth is 
speaking of what we're going to discover, then it's true. If it's not, then it's not true. But irregardless, the content of the words that come out of my mouth are what you have to weigh. That's what we're testing. That's what we're trying to work through. And so mine is not subjective. What I say is not subjective. That is an objective thing that we can look at and decide upon. So the content of what I say is incredibly decisive when it comes to testing a spirit. So by this you know. And then the second one is the healer in 6B, uh, the latter half of 6, is the character of the audience is equally revealing. So the character of the audience is revealing, but it's not as decisive. So it's a mixed audience, um, and your particular place is rather subjective. It doesn't mean that we can't come to some conclusions, but it, it's not as decisive as the words that are coming out of my mouth. I, I, what I'm saying, I said, and we have to deal with that. Where you are at and what you are receiving is rather subjective, but it is incredibly revealing as to whether or not the Spirit is true. Now, we will get to that in a minute. So, let's go ahead and jump into our actual text. Verse 1, uh, your first point is we must test the spirits. We must test the spirits. Verse 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice that the command to believe in the name of Jesus Christ is followed immediately by a prohibition to not believe every spirit. What am I talking about? Go back. Chapter 3. What is he talking about? He's talking about who God's children are, how we know that they're God's children. And then he starts talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we concluded last week. If you look in verse 24 of chapter 3, it says, The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the Spirit he has given us. Right on into verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. If you look at the capitalization in your Bible, hopefully at the end of chapter 3, from the Spirit He has given us is capitalized. If you look in verse 1, the spirits that are mentioned twice in verse 1 of chapter 4 are not capitalized. They're also in the plural. Every spirit implies that there are multiple, and then test the spirits, which is plural as well. We're in the end of chapter 3, we have a singular spirit, the spirit. It is a named spirit. But he tells us to believe and trust the Spirit, and then he says, don't listen to every spirit. But this is not new for him. It's similar to the commandment to love in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And it's followed by, do not love the world or the things of the world. So love everybody, but don't love the world and everything in the world. And the key here is that neither the Christian faith nor Christian love is indiscriminate. And the danger here for our application is, is Facebook. You, you get into some kind of Christian argument with anybody. Our Christian arguments, those are fun. Um, and what ultimately almost always happens, you see somebody say this, Jesus just tells us to love everybody. Christianity is about love, don't judge. And, and we have these universal sayings where we take a verse of Scripture and we just chuck it out there and sum up the entirety of Christianity in one word. Is love a big deal? Yeah, Paul says, if I have everything but I have not love, then I am to be pitied among all. Love is a huge deal, but we can't just throw it out there as if it's some indiscriminate blanket that covers who we are. 
Christian faith itself, what we believe and what we believe in, has to be worth consideration. We don't just believe anything and everything. What we love, who we love, how we love particularly, is not indiscriminate. We're given instructions on how these things are to be carried out. So yes, a Christian life is supposed to be full of love. But I can't be full of love for the things of the world. If I'm full of love for the things of the world, then I'm replacing Christ with the things of the world. That would be an indiscriminate love. So let's, let's be specific about what we're trying to do. As we look in our workplaces and you have people who say, I thought Christians were just supposed to be loving. Yeah, we are. But what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I love you. It's all good. Everything's okay. We can't just stop there. Now understand the position of the teacher specifically here. We're going to switch gears a little bit. The position of the teacher here is somewhat interchangeable with prophet. I'm going to use a couple different words to talk about his subject. Okay, so a subject of a sentence is the identifying noun, right? Rusty is talking. I'm the noun. Um, in here, we have a couple words that we're going to be using interchangeably. We have prophet, teacher, speaker, proclaimer. Any of those words, I'm talking about the same thing. Okay? Cool? Awesome. All right, so understand the position of the teacher. We have an interchangeable noun when we're talking about a prophet, like Paul is foretelling. Um, yes, foretelling. With a T and an H, not a foretelling. Foretelling, he's proclaiming something, and we have... Um, for us, it would be more of a modern. I don't call myself prophet, and I don't call him prophet. Um, we are proclaimers or preachers, if you will, of the word. So basically, a proclaimer is we're going to use it as a mouthpiece of the Spirit. What is, what is my function? My function is to be a mouthpiece for the Spirit to speak. And so for us, a true prophet or a proclaimer is the mouthpiece of the Spirit of God in verse 2. And that is equal to the Spirit of truth in verse 6. You're going to see a thread connect the beginning half of this passage with the end of it. In verse 2, we see that the Spirit of God is the, this is how you know the Spirit of God. It is someone who is the Spirit of truth. These two things are tied together. Similarly, a false prophet or a false proclaimer is the mouthpiece of the Spirit of error in verse 6, and that comes from the Spirit of the Antichrist in verse 3. Ultimately, behind every prophet is a spirit, and behind every spirit is God or Satan. And that has to be our identifying MO here. If we're going to progress through how do I evaluate teaching, you need to understand that in me right now is a spirit that is speaking. And behind that spirit is either God or it is Satan. And if we can approach our text with that kind of sincerity, I think you'll understand why precision is so necessary. So, our instruction to test them. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Why? Well, he tells us immediately, uh, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. One of the commentators for this passage said that there was a great outbreak of pseudo-Christianity. I love that, that idea of it. Pseudo-Christianity. We live in that right now. The Israelites struggled with that in their entire history. It wasn't called Christianity, it was called Okay. Judaism. <laughs> right? Israelites are struggling through that, and they have this syncretism issue where you have all these other nations 
that are coming in. They start marrying other wives. They bring in other gods. You have Baal coming in. And all of a sudden, you have this pseudo-Christianity of Baal plus Yahweh. And the Israelites struggle with that all the way. You look in Judges, and they go through six major cycles of God as their only God. They marry and bring in other uh, wives and bring in other gods. They fall into sin. A judge is given. They're delivered. And then they worship God again. And it happens six times. And so this pseudo-Christianity is something that we've struggled through in our entire existence as the people of God. And even more so here now where you have this new thing that's developing in the new covenant in the church, you have this one line of truth and it's incredibly easy to branch out of that with things that are mostly right. Mostly right. And so the danger for us is as we're looking at false teachers when we're talking about many false prophets who've gone out into the world, we can't say, oh, well, it'll be incredibly obvious when they're a false teacher. Because most of the time, the danger is that they're so close to the truth. And so with this pseudo-Christianity that's here, we have a great outbreak of it still here today. And Jesus gives us warnings about this in Matthew 7, 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, and listen to this, are ravenous wolves. Christianity is just about love, Right? If we sit there, and then when we go to war with these ravenous wolves, they're going to tear us apart. Their goal is not just to be right. Their goal is to destroy the sheep. In Mark chapter 13, 22 and 23, he gives us some more warnings. Paul gives us warnings for false teachers in Acts 20, 28 through 30. Peter gives us warnings in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And still, even today, many voices are clamoring for our attention. And we must beware of being too gullible and naive or even having a misguided charity and tolerance towards false doctrine. That is my biggest concern. And that's why I get upset when someone says Christianity is just about love. Because it is naive and it is misguided charity to just accept it because it, it's not hurting me. And we need to understand that anything but the truth is evil. A misguided charity or tolerance towards false doctrine, is evil. It is not of God. That's how serious this becomes. Now, by the same hand, I don't want you to be in this extreme superstition um, where you're believing everything, and on the opposite side, we have to be careful that we're not so suspicious that we don't believe anything. I mean, there's a biblical balance, I think, when we're testing the spirits, which is an active role on our parts to avoid the both, both extremes where we you know, believe everything or where we believe nothing. There is a balance for us. And I think for us, the balance is going to come down to an understanding of authority. I think an understanding of authority is critical to evaluating and testing spirits. And it comes in a, several different um, different ways for us in our life. We're going to experience and have to deal with the authority of particularly the scripture, of text. This is the authority. But there are other authorities with which we have to kind of work through how does this play into how I test scripture. So we have the authority of scripture, which is an easy one. But we have authority particularly in the church of elders. What role does an elder play in my life when I'm particularly instructing and teaching me the word? Should I be able to trust my elder when he teaches? Yeah. Uh, for us, we know that 
those who teach will be held to a higher standard of accountability for what we teach. That's a terrifying thing. That's why we put the amount of effort that we do into studying, that we make sure that we are precise, because God will hold us, the teachers, accountable for what we teach, but by the same hand, God's going to hold you accountable for what you teach. For some of you, the greater concern for what you don't teach. What are you teaching your kids? What are you teaching your wives? Men, are you washing your wife in the word? Sometimes it's with a Brillo pad and sometimes it's (laughs) with a loofah. Um, But you must be washing them with the word. We're going to be held accountable for what we teach. And then another way is just on your individual level. What, What authority do you have when it comes to interpreting scripture? How should you handle questions in the text? I'll tell you, just, this is just me. This is my method when it comes to authority and working through what I believe as I test the spirits. Uh, for instance, for books, um, I can walk into Family Christian Bookstore and a naive approach would be these are all good because they're in a Christian bookstore, right? Um, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but there are only about four books in there that I would read, um, and I'm not talking about the Bibles. It's a dangerous place. There's a lot of pseudo-Christianity happening there. And so when it comes to books, I'm very, very particular about what I spend my time reading. A, I'm protecting my resource of time. How much time do I have to read? But what do I need to be filling my heart with? Because out of the overflow of my heart, my mouth is going to speak. What comes in a man is what's going to come out of a man. I have to be careful that I'm putting true things into me. And so when it comes to books, I'm very particular about what I read. And I I have ways of seeking out which books I should read. I appeal to men that are much, much, much smarter than me and have much, much, much more time than me and through which God has already illumined truths to them that they can now share and teach me. But I have to be very discriminate about what I read. When it comes to teachers, it's the same thing. I don't just listen to the spirituality podcast. I listen to specific people that I trust that have similar and same doctrine as me because one doctrine is going to affect another I have a theology book, a doctrine uh, book that does not, he's not a proponent of complementarianism. He's an egalitarian, which means that he believes that men and women are created equal, which I do as well, but with the same roles. There's no distinction in roles. And I would say, as a complementarian, Matt and I both, we believe that men and women are created equal before the cross. We're both in the same image of God, but we have different and distinct roles to fulfill. Now, the problem is, is, if I read a guy who has that kind of theology, that's going to affect particularly his ecclesiology. What does he believe about the church? What does he believe about the roles of elders in the body? And all of a sudden, this thing that we could be on the same page about has been influenced by another doctrine. And it can be that subtle. And we have to be on guard for these things. And when it comes to sermon prep, I don't just read one commentator. <laughs> Um, I do the work myself, and I exegete the text to make sure that I allow the Spirit to illumine in me first what He would have for me in the text. And then I check it against other people. I want to make sure that I'm orthodox, that I am not off on some tangent of church history that's been dealt with 1,400 years ago. Uh, I want to make sure that I am following the truth. And so I read multiple commentators, but even then I'm specific about what commentators we read. And we appeal to someone who's incredibly smart about what books to choose. I don't mean Matt. I do mean Matt, but not the guy who picks them. <laughs> there, are, there are resources and tools out there that God has given the church for us to do things 
accurately. And so we have to understand authority and how that plays into what we are learning. Oh, that's verse 1. You doing all right? You need a stretch? I'm like halfway through. I play drums, so I'm like still breathing hard and running. Um, verse 2, let's keep going. This is how you know the Spirit of God. I, I just love it when John is so direct. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so we move from the need to test. You, you need to test. Do not believe, but test the spirits. We move from a need to the way. How do we test them? He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. This is how you know. And so for us, when we're talking, again, about character versus origin, we're concerned about origin. Origin can be determined by what the content of the teaching is. That's our first test. Our first test is what is the teacher saying? What is the content coming out of my mouth? And so he says specifically, what does it need to be said? It needs to be said that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's not merely a recognition of or, or even just an understanding of his identity. The demons believe him. The demons know who he is. It has to be an open and a bold profession of faith in him as incarnate Lord. And I think the danger that we experience in most of our contemporary culture is this. We have a lot of people identifying Jesus, but they do not openly confess him as incarnate Lord. They... Evil spirits repeatedly recognize Jesus and even his deity, but they do not acknowledge and confess him. And so the danger is we have a lot of people that will say, yes, Jesus is God. And then they say a lot of stuff that's not in keeping with that. The Holy Spirit will always confess Jesus Christ, and he always honors the Son of God. We have to approach this text with Trinitarian Lenses on, as Dr. Ware would say. With a Trinitarian perspective, understanding that every time we interact with God in this word, it is with all three parts of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're talking specifically about the Spirit being involved in us, right? But the Spirit is the one that has to speak about Jesus. And Jesus is always concerned about pointing to the Father. So if you want to know that I have the Spirit of God in me right now, the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit, and He is concerned about honoring and confessing Jesus Christ. Always. John 15, 26 speaks to this. John 16, and we're going to read this one, verse 13 through 15. It says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. How awesome is that? That is the Holy Spirit's role for us. That's Jesus outlining what is to come for us in the New Testament church age with the powering of the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me. And so the Spirit attests the truth to the Son of God. And this is particularly true when we're dealing with what First John's concerned about, the incarnation, right? He's concerned about the flesh. Jesus Christ um, has come in the flesh and is from God. And that's kind of a big deal to have the Holy Spirit back that up, considering the Holy Spirit's the one that was the enactor of the Immaculate Conception, right? 
the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, I was there. I was the one that helped make Jesus into flesh. He can testify as to the truth of that. So wrapping up this, this verse, the perfect tense of come, if you look at the way it says, who confesses that Jesus Christ has come. This is a perfect tense. It emphasizes that the flesh is assumed by the Son of God in the incarnation, and that has become his permanent possession. From the virgin birth on, Jesus will always have the flesh. The fundamental Christian doctrine which can never be compromised is the eternal, divine, human person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll spend some time looking at that in your last point. Verse 3, let's continue. As but every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. And again, a very clear cut. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that he is coming, and he is already in the wor- world now. So, verse 2 tells us how we know that it is from God, and the contrary is true for us in verse 3. If they do not confess Jesus, then they are not from God. Notice in verse 3, though, that he doesn't mention the flesh. He just simply says he does not confess Jesus. Again, verse 3, but every spirit who does not confess Jesus, does any of your Bibles have the word flesh after that in verse 3? Probably not, because it's not not there in the Greek. Um, What's interesting about that is to confess Jesus, in the mind of John, who's who's writing this, in the mind of John, to confess Jesus can only mean one thing. That's namely to confess him as Christ come in the flesh. So he says it very explicitly in verse 2, and then just, it should be assumed going forward in verse 3. So in order to know whether or not a spirit is of God, it must confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In order to know that it is not from God, they will not confess Jesus is from God, particularly in the flesh. So let's look at some of the context, particularly in how we're evaluating. If you look in chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 18, flip over there for me. It says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father, and he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. So work with me here. Chapter 2 is teaching us that our confession or denial of the Son depends whether we have the Father or not. He says that no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John 6, write this one down. You need to read this. This is insane. John chapter 6, 28 through 71. It's a lot of verses. Read that passage tomorrow, tonight. It is crazy watching how Jesus deals with the people that have come. He has an enormous crowd of people. And then he starts speaking truth and they leave. And then more people leave. 
and he continues to teach. And then ultimately it's just him and the disciples. And he turns to the disciples and he says, well, you guys go too. And we see that Jesus is ultimately left really alone. Why? Because he claimed to be the same as the Father. The fact that Jesus made himself one with God made everyone leave, and that is going to happen to us today. No one denies the Son has the Father. Chapter 4, in comparison, teaches that on our confession or denial of the Son depends on whether or not we are inspired by the Spirit. So chapter 2 says that if you deny the Son, then you don't have the Father. And chapter 4 says that if, if you deny the Son, then you do not have the Spirit. And that pretty much sums up every possible state that you could be in when it comes to our confession. In every single case, the personhood of Christ is absolutely central. If you want to know if you have the Father, you have to have the Son. If you want to know that you have the Spirit, you have to have the Son. The personhood of Christ is fundamental. It's not something that we can just say, I believe in Jesus. What does that mean? We have to know what it means to say, I believe in Jesus. There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus. What does that mean? And so for us, no system can be tolerated if it denies either his eternal deity or his historical humanity. When we're talking about this gray area, whether it's truth or error, there is no gray area. If you deny his eternal deity from eternity past, he has always been God. Or if you deny his historical humanity. So when he was incarnate and on for eternity, which is a limited time compared to eternity, his historical humanity, if we deny that, and we do not have the Son, the Spirit, or the Father. So that's, I, I hate sounding so polemical, but that's where we stand. If, if it's not the truth, then it's evil. I, I get how black and white that is, but that's the idea of objective truth. And we can't give charity and tolerance for things that are mostly right. If it's mostly right, it's wrong. It's evil. It has to be objective truth. And the only objective truth for us to claim here is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. And then your next point, those who deny the Son have neither the Father nor the Spirit. It takes us to verse 4. So those are the tests of the, of the speaker, the teacher. Now we're moving more into your realm, the hearer. Those who deny the Son have neither the Father nor the Spirit. Verse 4, You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. All right, there are three um, pronouns coming up for us, all right? We have you in verse 4, we have they in verse 5, and we have we in verse 6. All right, I read through 1 through 6 um, last week, and I got excited because I thought that this was going to be a proof text for us to say, I can justify and feel better about everything, every argument that I have uh, on Facebook or any, anything like that, because those who are of God listen to those who are of God. So you are obviously not of God, sir, 
uh, because you're not listening to what I have to say. And that is not at all what the text says. Um, we have to be very careful how we approach these pronouns and who we, again, when it comes to authority, what piece do we play in the text? Not what part does the text play in our life? It says, little children, you are of God. This is for us today, Christian readers in general, okay? Little children, you are of God. He is speaking to believers, both present there and all believers present here. You have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one of the world. Overcome them. That's the same one that we talked about back in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. I was preaching through that section, the reasons for writing. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory. You have overcome the evil one. That's the same uh, word. But when we're looking at how these work, it is the same word, but it's not in the same moral sense here. So in 12 through 14, it's more of a, like a morality battle type feel to it. When we're looking at chapter 4, it's particularly an intellectual side. If you look at the context of what we're talking about, it's all intellectual. It's truth and error. There's no really like physical moral stuff going on there. Uh, we're dealing primarily with the intellect. And he's saying that not only have you tested them and found them wanting, but you've, you've conquered them. The false teachers have not succeeded in, de- in deceiving you. Intellectually, you have won. That's what he's saying as far as overcome. And so you found them wanting, but, and you've conquered them. And then so for us, when we reach back into 2.19, as we're, as we're looking at this comparison between 2 and 4, it should be no surprise that these false teachers have departed from us. I mean, if you wonder why people leave the church because of doctrinal issues, were they false teachers? Because if they were, and you've overcome them because the Spirit in you is greater than the one of this world, we should, be, we should not be surprised that they've left. It says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is the beloved disciple, and we gussy him up to be the loving guy, but he is incredibly black and white here. He makes no bones about it that you are either for or against. And when it comes to false teaching, if you have overcome someone, they're going to leave. They're going to go away. And the danger for us is not just what they say. We get wrapped up in this intellectual idea, and it's not just what they say, it's what they do. Because doing comes from being. So because of who they are, they're doing what they do. But just because they do not verbally deny Jesus as Christ, they may physically illustrate that belief. To deny the body love is to illustrate denial of Jesus. It is a perfect example of that. And so, how did this victory come about? How could you overcome this spirit? He says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We need to understand that the evil spirit of this world is indeed great. And left to ourselves, we will lose. The evil spirit in this world is great, but praise God that he is greater. God is greater than any other spirit, and by his illumination, particularly in the Holy Spirit, we too may be sure to overcome all false teaching. Where does that come from? The spirit illumines in our heart the truth of God's word, and we are able to defeat the evil spirit that is great in this world, but God is greater. And so here, just as in chapter 2, 18 to 27, we find protection against error and or victory over it by both an objective standard of doctrine 
and the indwelling Spirit who illumines our minds to grasp and apply it. If we're not learning doctrine, what are we learning? If we're not learning who God is, what are we learning? An objective standard of doctrine is God's Word. And the only way to accurately apply it is through the help of the Holy Spirit. That is how we have victory. John Calvin says this, Unless the Spirit of Wisdom is present, capital Spirit, Holy Spirit, unless He is present, there is little or no profit in having God's words in our hands. It is too much for us. My question to you is, as you approach Scripture, do you have an attitude of, I can figure it out? An attitude of, I can figure it out, is not an attitude of humility as you approach the written Word of God. As we evaluate and mine the truths and treasure in God's Word, we need to understand that without the grace of the Holy Spirit in our life, illuminating the text and opening our hearts and minds to understand, we won't get it. Do you understand the chasm that God had to cross to even give us intelligible words? To go from the excellency and perfectness of God, the knowledge of everything, to bring to us words that are even intelligible to human beings, let alone still maintain truth, is just an astronomical gap. We cannot think that we can even handle this on our own. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, I am not able to understand a bit of this. I can certainly read it, but I'm going to be just like the lost in the world. The message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are unbelieving. But to the believing, it is the power to save. It is the grace of God that allows us to overcome the evil one. Verse 5 and 6, they are intimately connected. They are complementary to each other. Verse 5 says this, They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. There's a striking contrast that happens here with false prophets and then true apostles. The they versus the we. The pronouns again. But also the different audiences that listen to them. The world and then he that knows God. So again, John gives us another contrast. We have two pronouns, they versus we, right? And then we have the audience of who those two people are speaking to. We have the world and you have those who know God. The world recognizes its own people. And they listen to a message which originates in its own circle. And this explains the popularity of Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood is fantastic at this. It's an echo chamber, right? The message of the world is received by the world and propagated by the world. We see that in politics, we see that in Hollywood, we see that in school, we see that at the office. The message of the world is palatable to the world because it's from the world. It makes sense. Then in verse 6, we switch pronouns to we. We is not us, okay? Uh, this is where it gets tempting to insert ourselves into the text. Uh, because this means that I, and let's change the we to, to mean I and just read what it, what it would say. I am from God, and anyone who knows God listens to me. And anyone who is not from God does not listen to me. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Um, that can't work, right? We as the apostles, it's not the same as verse 4 as you. 
This is in direct opposition to the they, the false teachers. But how do you know that we are of God, the apostles, and are teaching particularly the truth? You can tell that our message, I'm going to get confused a little bit in pronouns for one second here. You can tell that our message is God's message because God's people listen to it and they receive it. All right? So let's talk about the, the pronoun here. It would be the height of arrogance for anyone to say that whoever knows God agrees with me and only those who are not of God disagree with me. That's precisely what John is saying. So when we take verse 6 again and you insert we, I'm sorry, you insert John or I instead of we and read it that way. I am from God and anyone who knows God listens to me. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to me. It would be incredibly arrogant to say. That's precisely what John is saying about himself. I mean, do you understand the weight of that? The, the, the arrogance of that? John's saying, if you don't listen to me, you're not from God. John is claiming that very thing for himself. This is why I don't preach from an iPad usually, because I touched it. Oops. All right. Well, I lost my spot. There we go. Okay. Um, John is not speaking in his own name, particularly in the name of the church, but as an apostle. All right. We have to understand authority again. The apostles are conscious of the special authority bestowed upon them by Jesus Christ. Jesus gave the apostles special authority that no one else will ever have. When we look at the structure of the church from Paul, he says that the church is constructed on these things. The apostles are the foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. I'm a teacher of God's word. I'm even an elder in God's church. But I'm not an apostle. I'm not a foundational piece. I'm like a couch. I fill in the house. That's it. That's my role. The foundation has already been set, and it will never be reset. It is what it is. The apostles are the foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. The cornerstone is incredibly pivotal to make sure that you have a square house. That's what you use to base off all of the geometry of the house to make sure that it is a sound structure, but the foundation is what holds everything together, and that is apostles. And he's absolutely aware of the special authority that he has, and he uses it to great effect because he's saying... I am the foundation. If you are in my house, if you are on this building, you know the foundation because you're on it. If you're not in the house, then you're not on the foundation. You're not in the house at all. So if I'm in the family of God, I'm going to know the apostles, and I'm going to listen to them. And so the contrast that we have is the world listens to its own, and God's people listens to God. There's a certain affinity between God's word and God's people. In John 10, Jesus is talking about how he's the great shepherd. He says that my sheep hear my voice and they know me and I know my sheep. Everyone, in John 18, he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to his witness of the truth. So now we've, we've already talked about test one. What's the speaker saying? We're well into... What does the audience have to do with this? What does the hearer have to do with this? I think the key here is that if you are God's people, you will listen and receive God's proclaimed word. If you're not receiving the word right now, then you are not in the right house. The spirit in you, in verse 4, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because of the one who is in you, the spirit in you, enables you to discern his own voice speaking through us. Verse 2, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from 
God. So the Spirit in you is what allows you to understand and receive what comes out of me because the Spirit is present in both. I think this sums it up for you. All right? You might want to write this one down. This helps me as far as understanding what part each of us play. It's that the hearer discerns the true message. The hearer discerns the true message. And on the flip side, the teacher discovers the true disciples. The hearer discerns the true message. So you, the audience, will understand what is true if you are from God. You discern the true message. The teacher, my job, Matt's job, whoever's teaching, we will discover the true disciple. And so even as I preach today, not all of you are receiving what I'm saying. There's a reality that happens in almost every context that I teach in. And I would venture to say the truth, the same is true for Matt. As I speak and as I cling to the Holy Spirit's role in my life, and I preach Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, I'm discerning amongst you and then after the fact, as the Spirit has had time to work in you, who has actually received the message. And you likewise should be testing me all through today and saying, is he giving a true message? Matthew 10, 40-42, nails that on the head. There's a repeated emphasis that safety from error is found in loyalty that which his hearers had or heard from the beginning. And chapter 2, verse 7, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 11, and 2 John, verse 5, and, and even 9, we see repeatedly, you have had or heard this from the beginning. Stay true to what you've heard from the beginning. Safety is found in sticking to orthodoxy. It's the reason that I evaluate the books that I read. Is it orthodox? Is it, is it true? Is it of the established pattern and tradition of what we know to be true of God's Word? Which leads us then into my favorite part. Ready? The importance of doctrinal specificity. All right. We're going to go back up to verse 2, and this is going to be our exploratory verse, Okay. Um, you're going to have to work a little hard to keep up with me for the next five minutes, all right? Um, we've got to move quickly, but also we're drawing some incredibly fine lines when we're talking about being specific right here, okay? And your tendency is going to be to say, really, it's that small of an issue? Really, it's that small of an issue, okay? This is, salvation depends upon this. The incarnation of Christ depends upon this. Evil and truth depend upon this Fine line. There are several of them. So, what do we need to confess? Verse 2. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So we have to confess Jesus as Christ come in the flesh. All right. If we have two working pieces, puzzle pieces that are fitting together, one is Jesus. The other is Christ come in the flesh. These two pieces have to be connected by an as. Jesus as Christ come in the flesh. Here's what the heretics in 1 John were teaching. All right? This is my disclaimer. What I'm getting ready to say is not true um, about God. This is a heresy. A heresy is something that is not, uh, not orthodox. It is not true doctrine. It is what we would call a false doctrine. Okay? So that's what heresy would be. The heretics are teaching this. They taught that Christ descended upon the man, Jesus, at his baptism 
and then withdrew from him before his death. Okay? It was not that Christ came into the flesh of Jesus, but that Christ, or Jesus was the Christ who came in the flesh. That's our, that's our distinction here. The heretics are saying this. Jesus was like Colin, okay? He's a man, an awesome man. And he, he was living. And I, Jesus in heaven, descended upon him when he was baptized. Now there's two of us doing life together, right? And that, the crucifixion, I left him to die because I'm a great Jesus. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm a great Christ. He was Jesus. Uh, that's, that's what we're talking about here. The heretics are saying that Jesus, the person, was a man and Christ came on him. What is orthodoxy? Christ came in the flesh as one man, both human and divine. You see the difference? So for us, it's, it was not that Christ came into the flesh, descended upon him, but that Jesus was the Christ come in the flesh. That's the specific way that he sets up verse 2, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It matters how specific we are. Why? Because you cannot divide Jesus from the Christ. Right? That's what we would call docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism talks about having two divisions between Jesus and Christ. So the word docetism comes from the Greek verb dokeo. So basically to seem or to appear to be. All right? it, it seems or appears that he is now the Christ, but the Christ leaves him because there are two separate pieces. And behind docetism is an assumption that the material creation is inherently evil, and therefore the Son of God could not have been united to a true human nature. What is John talking about in chapter 1 and 2? The heretics are saying that the flesh is evil, so there's no way that Jesus could have come in the flesh. Because that would make him evil. That's docetism. So the danger, modern evangelicals, it's us, who neglect to teach on the full humanity of Christ can unwittingly support docetistic tendencies in our hearers. Where you identify Jesus Christ as two people. Jesus the man and Christ God who came onto him rather than as a man. Do you see the difference? I get some head nods. Even if it's no, that's fine. Just give me a head shake. All right. That is a specific detail, and it matters a lot. It matters a lot. If God did not come as the flesh and pay the sins as a man, then he is not a perfect representative for us. He did not suffer in every way as us. He could not bear the weight of the burden of the wrath of God because he's a man only. There's a ton of problems with that. The docetism is an example. Modalism. Modalism is another extreme example on here. Modalism is, let's break it down, modes, different modes, and ism is a belief or process, modalism. It teaches that God the Father was God the Father in Genesis, all the way up to Matthew, whatever, when Jesus is born. Now, God the Father ceases to exist as God the Father, and God becomes the Son, Jesus Christ. There is no Holy Spirit during this time. There is no God the Father during this time. It's just Jesus Christ. And that's from the birth of Christ all the way to the ascension of Christ. And one of their proof texts is that I cannot send the Holy Spirit until I leave. And they would say because I have to become the Holy Spirit. Um, 
Why it doesn't make sense? That make, doesn't make a lot of sense. And then so from the ascension, from then on through the rest of eternity, God is simply the Holy Spirit. There is no Jesus. There is no Father. That is modalism. And we know that with a Trinitarian perspective that God is all three at the same time for all eternity, future, and past. They interact with each other. They submit to each other within that. Um, another one, Apollinarianism. Um, this one, I'm not going to read. Uh, I'm just going to explain it. So our bodies, our, our persons, are made up of two things, at least, right? Our flesh, and then an immaterial spirit of some sort, right? That's just what we're all, all made up of. It's what distinguishes us from particularly animals, right? Um, the image-bearer side of us is that immaterial side. Now, so here's, here's the fine line, right? They would teach that Jesus had a human body, a colon, but he did not have a spirit, a soul. He did not have an image. Instead, the image of Jesus came to him. So now you have two pieces of a puzzle literally fitting together, and then to make one man, we basically have half of each of the two. You see that? You see what could be wrong with that, maybe? Nestorianism would say that you have a human person and a divine person. So basically you have, <laughs> you have two identities, all right? We have, uh, uh, what do you call them, uh, psychiatric words for those people um, who have two identities. You have a Jesus identity, you have a human identity. And it would seem as if they were at odds with each other. Do you see any time in Scripture where Jesus is at odds with himself? We don't. There, there's a ton of different heresies that we've dealt with over the course of the Christian faith. This is why historical theology is important. Because these things come back. Modalism has come back. It's already been dealt with in like 300 AD. But they come back, and there is a precise definition for what we would claim. And so together, to kind of wrap us up for this, why do we need to be precise? Because there's important pieces to this. If it's mostly true, it's evil. And we're not going to get anywhere until we can stand firm on that contrast. So together, uh, I'll, I'll read it because this is a, a wall of text. Um, we're going to look at the Chalcedon uh, confirmation, and particularly what they are saying when it comes to the person of Jesus. All right, And this is on the screen. Try to follow along. Listen for this. This is what I want for you to do here. Look for the precision words that are used. Okay, The precision words that are used and how they might go against some of the things that, that we just talked about. You ready? Yeehaw. All right. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, Trinity, and also perfect in manhood, deity, and humanity, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, irrational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential, we're talking about essence, with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin. So that has to do everything with this Trinitarian perspective. It has to do with both of his essences as human and as God. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, Incarnation, the mother of God, according to the manhood and humanity, 
One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. All four of those words take care of one heresy apiece. You cannot divide God. You cannot separate Him. He is not at odds with Himself. And He does not change modalism. The distinction of natures being that by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. He doesn't lose any piece of either nature when he comes together. He's still 100% God and 100% man. But rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord, Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. That is precision doctrine. And there's a lot in there. I think when the Chalcedon definition is talking about these two natures, we're talking about subsistence and the hypostatic union. Big words, I know. I'm sorry. Go back to two Christmases ago. Uh, we talked about the hypostatic union. What is important for us guys today when we're talking about this passage is verse 2. Okay, verse 2 is, is the key piece here. And it's what requires precision. It's what requires us to be precise when it comes to doctrine. Am I, the preacher, proclaiming Christ come in the flesh and identifying and proclaiming Him as Lord and Savior of all? Am I doing that? That should indicate to you that the Spirit of God is in me. And hearer, if you are hearing these words, you can have assurance of salvation. That you have the Father and that you have the Spirit because you've accepted the Son. But if you're not, then you have no assurance of having the Father or the Spirit because you've not accepted the Son. And it matters who the Son is. Because if He's not who He said He is, then He's not done what He said He did. And if He's not done what He said He did, then we are all lost and dying and have no hope of salvation. I know this seems a little silly, but precision is essential. It is important that we have specific doctrine when it comes to the church. And if you have time this afternoon, go home and look up the words that we just sang for grace alone earlier. Uh, we sang a ton of doctrine in there. So if you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just read that wall of text and that definition. Um, you sang it uh, in grace alone. That is singing doctrine. And if that song does not move you to tears, um, I don't, I, we were on the way to church this morning and my eyes were tearing up. I was trying to sing it and I got all frog-voiced. Um, this doctrine is important, man. It, it is, it's who God is. And I can stand here and plead, so I'm, I'm going to stop pleading, but I want you to love Jesus. I do. That's what I'm concerned about, and that, that's how you learn who he is. I love my wife a lot, and I love her more as I learn who she is. I love God a lot, and I learn more about him, and it makes me love him more. So, let's pray. Um, we've got one more song that we're going to go ahead and fly through, and then uh, we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. Um, God, forgive me uh, for some of my overzealousness. Um, Father, I, I, I love your word. And um, I desire that for all of our people. Um, Father, I would ask that you 
Give us assurance of your Son, Father, as we take today's word and we deal with the fact of whether or not we stand with the Son, that, Father, we can find assurance in knowing that we have you. Father, he says that we eat his flesh and drink his blood. I mean, Jesus is extreme. And, Father, everyone left him after he said that. And, Father, I pray that I am not one of those leaving when he says that. But, Father, that I will look to your Son, and, Father, he will be my advocate. And, Father, that through relationship with him, I can have relationship with you. And, Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done. And, Father, I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.